Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that was the voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking yesterday in the House of Commons in Ottawa. What a shocking moment here, the stunning allegations by Canada that India is, was involved in a political assassination in Surrey. The murder of Sikh temple leader Hardeep Singh Nijar is gunned down in June. What a shocking moment. It has caused a diplomatic rift here between Canada and India. Where does it all go from here now? Let's discuss with my guest, Ujjal Dosanjh, the former Attorney General of British Columbia, former Federal Health Minister, and of course he's the former Premier of British Columbia. Ujjal, thank you for coming on today. Good to be with you. Okay, Ujjal, when you heard this moment yesterday and you heard this news, this dramatic moment in the House of Commons... What went through your mind yesterday? What did you think? Well, it, it was shocking to hear. Um, if true, uh, it is absolutely more shocking. Um, you know, I grew up in India um, uh, in the shadow of the Nehru's and the Gandhi's and my own grandfather who spent years in British jails. And my idea of India isn't uh, a, a um, you know, uh, a kind of a, uh, nation that's an outlaw nation going across borders to kill other citizens in other countries. Um, so it is absolutely shocking. And the Prime Minister must have basis to make that allegation. Um, all I say is that it would, it would have been better received if he had produced some evidence for people to see. And I understand that there is a, a fresh investigation that's going on with the RCMP. Um, if the RCMP had concluded the investigation, had they charged somebody, it would be a lot more credible. But, you know, he's the prime minister of our country. And uh, if someone has come into this country and killed a Canadian, that's absolutely horrible. And we should all stand together and say that's not acceptable. Uh, but where do we go from here? I mean, India-Canada relations have been in cold storage for some time. Um and, uh, and uh, you know, I don't think there is uh, any chance of them thawing anytime sooner. Um, I think that uh, with, with Mr. Modi, um, the situation in India is very serious. Uh, people, you know, minorities are being lynched. The Dalits, the Muslims, the, the Christian minority in the Northeast, um, they are being severely, um, um, uh, really brutalized. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, and India, on the other hand, also sees uh, Mr. Trudeau as not a friend of India. They see him as a friend of the Khalistanis and, uh, with some, with some, uh, justification because, uh, you know, many of his uh, close advisors and friends in the Indo-Canadian community have been Khalistani supporters and sympathizers. Yeah, Khalistan, of course, the, the independent Sikh nation that is that has been campaigned for by some, and you've been a very out, outspoken critic uh, of political extremism in in the past. 
Let's listen to a, a clip of the Prime Minister speaking again yesterday on this point. And at the recent G20 summit, there was obvious frosty tensions here uh, between Justin Trudeau and Indian Prime Minister Modi. And you'll hear, now we know why, and you'll hear yeah. Trudeau describe here how he uh, directly confronted the Indian Prime Minister. Let's listen to what he had to say, uh, Ujjal, and I'll get your thoughts. Yeah. Canada has declared its deep concerns to the top intelligence and security officials of the Indian government. Last week at the G20, I brought them personally and directly to Prime Minister Modi in no uncertain terms. Given Ujjal Dasanjh, given your knowledge of Indian politics and government right now, how do you anticipate this is being received in India? They have denied this. They have now expelled a Canadian diplomat. Do you anticipate this is going to get even more tense between the two countries? Well, I, I hope it doesn't. Um, it will if uh, issues aren't resolved. I think uh, all of this would be put to bed um, uh, once the RCMP concludes the investigation and finds the killers uh, of Mr. Niger, and they may have something to say as to who hired them and uh, what motivated them to, to kill Mr. Niger. Um, I have no doubt that the Prime Minister is sincere in his anger, and uh, as he should be, if it's true that India came across the border and, and uh, you know, hit, uh, killed one of our people in Canada. Uh, I, you know, have no sympathies for separatists who want to dismember countries based on religions um, or ethnicities or languages. But that doesn't mean that I am not as angry as anybody else. It, it's it's just not acceptable for uh, a so-called democratic country uh, who just received independence in you know seventy five years ago to uh, go across borders and uh, act like an international bandit? If that's true, that's absolutely horrible. Ujjal, you you were born in Punjab, as you mentioned. Yep. You've been you described as a, a moderate secular Sikh who has spoken out against Sikh, Sikh extremism and the Khalistani independence movement. Yes. Let me play a clip here for you from Jagmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, right. who points out that he feels that for Canadian Sikhs who, who may want to express political opinions here, that their feeling of safety has been threatened here in our own country. Here's Jagmeet Singh speaking yesterday. I'll get your thoughts. People have fled persecution in their home countries where they were threatened by torture and violence and death to come to Canada as a beacon of safety. That safety and security that so many Canadians feel has now been rocked. Do you, do you agree with him that for Canadian, Indo-Canadians who may want to speak out about political issues that maybe now they might feel afraid about speaking out even in, within our own borders? Oh, ab absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you... Um, I mean, I, I was in India in May, and uh, and in fact, uh, a, a journalist uh, who interviewed me for a podcast said, uh, I wonder why you haven't been arrested uh, by the Indian government, because I am a very fierce critic of Mr. Modi. I've written uh, not, you know, online columns against him. I have been criticizing him ever since he came to power and did not... Uh, um, did not prevent the uh, you know uh, the violence, the communal violence and the hate. Uh, he's never condemned it. He he never condemns what's going on in the northeast where Christian minorities are being being persecuted. He doesn't uh, 
condemned the violence against the Dalits and the untouchables and the Muslims. Um, so I, you know, um, I, I agree that uh, that India is not uh, at the moment a place where where one can feel totally free. Um, but you know, um, I mean, Mr. Jag- Jagmeet Singh has his own issues. Uh, uh, in the past, uh, he's been a vocal supporter of uh, separatism, Khalistani separatism, and uh, and but you know, in what he said, I can't find fault. Yeah, and and he he went on yesterday as well about when he was growing up as a kid, he was told that if you speak out in favor of Sikh separatism or a Khalistani state that you could face repercussions from India. Maybe they would not give you a visa. Maybe if you went to India, you would be attacked or, or, or worse. Did you hear that growing up as, as, as well? I mean, I know you grew up in India, but when you came to Canada, was that commonplace feeling in, in the community? If you, if you speak up, you put yourself in danger, especially if you go back to India. Well, it wasn't, um, you know, the, 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 I mean, before the Khalistani um, issue, there was the uh, Naxalite movement, which was uh, a violent leftist uh, communist movement. And there were a lot of uh, fake encounters, uh, encounters uh, that were, you know, where people were killed in cold blood. So these killings and things started long before 1984, long before uh, the Khalistan issue arose. And when I came from India, it was one of the freest countries. I had just come in 1964. Nehru had just passed away in 1963. Uh, it was one of the freest countries in the world. And uh, that is unfortunately not the case right now for some yeah. people in India. That, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And you have been a victim of political violence in your own life. L- listeners may recall in, in the 1980s how you were attacked outside your law office by someone wielding an an iron bar who apparently had been targeted for your own views on this and you've been a very outspoken critic of of violence where does this where does this leave us going forward here now do you have concerns that there could be there could be more violence or this could escalate how do we need to approach this now as canadians i think that rhetoric on both sides of um, uh, the oceans uh, in Canada and India, uh, particularly official rhetoric. I think it needs to calm down a bit and the RCMP investigation needs to proceed and people need to be charged and prosecuted. I think at that moment, there might be some sense of clarity. Until then, I think that, you know, there'd be allegations and counter allegations and we all make up our own minds based on our own beliefs and knowledge. Can this case, though, be solved without the cooperation of Indian authorities? India has denied this. They've kicked out a Canadian diplomat. We kicked out an Indian diplomat yesterday. This seems to be getting worse, the relations between the two countries. Can the case be solved if the two countries are are not working together? No, the case may be able to be resolved. I mean, obviously, somebody hired hitmen who were in Canada. Um Police say there were two hitmen, uh, one driver. All three of them are suspects. They were obviously on the Canadian soil, unless, unless they believe and they know that these were Indians that came into 
Canada to simply, uh, you know, do the job and then then go back to India. If that's the case, you need the cooperation of the Indian government. If that's not the case, if these are Canadian men who were hired to do uh, the dirty deed, uh, we should be able to resolve it without uh, the cooperation of India. Jal Dosanj, I very much appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on. You're most welcome. All right. Let's talk now about the soaring cost of living in Canada, especially right here in Metro Vancouver. We've got the worst of it here for sure. We've got the highest cost of living in the country. We've got the highest gas prices. We have the highest real estate prices. We've got the highest rents in the country. Forget about buying a place. A lot of people have given up on that idea. For many, it's almost impossible to find a decent, affordable place to even rent. A key reason, a shortage of supply. So the Justin Trudeau government this week, this is a big move by Trudeau here. He says he wants to ramp up construction of new rental units. Got Jay Cooper standing by to discuss whether this is going to work. Have a listen to Trudeau making the announcement here. I'm pleased to announce that we are going to be removing the federal GST for the construction of new apartment buildings, and I'm encouraging all provinces to do the same. Okay, the GST being removed from building new rental construction in the country. Okay, about time, about time, it's only been about, what, 15 years since he made this first announce this promise? Took a while, but we got got there. Jay Cooper is my guest. Jay is a Vancouver real estate analyst. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Jay, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks, Mike. Uh, Thanks a lot. Okay, I think this will work. Do you support this idea? Yeah, I mean, I've been supportive of removing GST uh, for years and years. I've been talking about this. Um, I actually would take it a step further and remove GST across the board. Now, they don't want to do that because, of course, they don't want to be subsidizing uh, luxury condos. But my take is that um, any product that we can build, you know, the more the better. Um, I think we should have eliminated it across the board. But here's the deal. Trudeau promised this. um, You mentioned 15 years. I first heard of it about eight years ago. So eight years at least to get a 5% GST rebate. Well, construction costs are going to go up more than 5% next year. So this is being, this is not the game changer uh, that's being advertised here. Okay. Speaking of removing the GST, so you're saying that he should have gone further, removed the GST from what? All home construction, all real estate construction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do you feel that way? Well, the, the taxes are the problem. Go- government is not the solution to anyone's problem. This is what I've been telling people since the beginning. Government is the problem. You know, it's it's the taxation, it's the um, uh, it's roadblocks, right? Too much um, municipal government. We've got development cost levies and community amenity contributions and arduous approval processes. I've got clients waiting years and years on development permits. Um, and the big one is the provincial government, the NDP, which uh, caps rents annually so that you can't raise rents um to cover costs and that has basically taken any investors and landlords out of the market okay on that point we've got the maximum rent increase in british columbia this year two percent next year it will be 3.5 percent 
But that, of course, is only for existing tenants. If there's a new tenant moves in, then the sky's the limit. So this is one of the reasons why we're seeing rents go up so high. There's a new tenant, man, the landlord can really jack the rent up. Jay, there's been a, a campaign in British Columbia here for what's known as vacancy control, right? So you would bring in rent control even with... A new tenant between tenancies. You get a new tenant, doesn't matter. You'd still have a have a rent cap. Maybe you could only raise the rent two percent more than the previous tenant. What do you think of that idea? Because the, the, you know, there, there is a movement here to get this done in BC. Your thoughts? So any kind of rent controls take landlords out of the market and decrease the rental stock. So that's the first thing that happens. Uh, eventually, you won't be able to find rentals at any price. The other thing it does is it actually um, landlords will not keep their units in proper standing. They become dilapidated. I know a lot of these old rental apartment buildings, um, they're completely dilapidated. They're held together with duct tape and rubber cement. So that's what you create with rent controls. Now, with vacancy controls, you're taking it a step further where you can't raise the rents between tenancies. Um, If they bring that in, there will no... No, no landlord is going to take that on. No investor is going to take that on. And that'll be the end of, uh, of rentals of any kind in BC. So what do you think would happen to existing rentals if they did that? Put them up on Airbnb or something? Well, they'd get sold to end users. And that's already happening. Uh, I've Lots of tenanted units on the, on the market right now. Um, you know, these are going to be bought not by an investor because they don't want rents from 2011. They want to screen and qualify their own uh, tenants at today's market rates. So they're going to sell them and um, the buyer will most likely be an end user. Uh, they'll write subject to vacant possession and they'll uh, take possession of it as, a, as, a, as an owner and the tenant will have to leave. How about the the pressure that Trudeau is is under here? It was interesting to listen to him talk about removing the GST from rental construction here years after he first promised it. This is something that his main opponent, Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, had been advocating for. Polyev griping that Trudeau swiped his idea here. But I don't think you can deny, like, Trudeau is feeling the heat on housing. Have a listen to him here. So this is Trudeau speaking this week. And listen to the the question the reporter asked him here. Should he have done a lot more a lot sooner? And listen to Trudeau's answer here. If we hadn't got the federal government back into the business of housing, then everything would be much worse right now. Do you think you've moved too slow, though? Um, I always say we should have, could have moved faster. Absolutely. Okay, we should have and could have moved mm-hmm. faster. That's quite a, an admission there. We could have done more, we should have done more, and we didn't. How much trouble do you think think he's in here on housing, Jay? Yeah, I think people are, are, are frustrated here, but here's the thing. The government can't build housing on the scale that's required in, in Canada. Uh, yeah. Only the free market can, enterprise system can do that. So what you need to do is stop going to war with landlords and investors and the development industry, you need to mobilize the development industry to build millions of new homes. And you do that through tax incentives. I think if you build purpose-built rental, you should get a 30-year tax holiday. That would be that would be a game changer. 5% GST. I mean, it's it's 
It's a joke. You'd cut it it even more. Jay Cooper is my guest. He's a Vancouver real estate analyst. Hey, Jay, here's another interesting one that this week, and Trudeau, I think, really feeling the heat here on cost of living. I I think that Polyev and the Conservatives have been eating his lunch on these issues. We see it reflected in the polls. Trudeau trying to fight back here now. So this week we saw grocery store CEOs summoned again to Ottawa where they were told, you better lower your prices here or else we will bring in a punitive tax on you if you do not lower your food prices in the big grocery store chains. This is interesting because it was about a year ago that federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh had had been calling for the same thing. He had been calling for an excess profit tax on these grocery store chains. Trudeau at the time criticizing the idea. Have a listen to this here. Go back in time one year. This is Trudeau speaking one year about the grocery profit tax idea. Have a listen. The last thing we want to do is uh, put on a tax that people then just pass along to the consumers. So we have to be careful about what we're doing. Uh, But I don't think that the simplistic solution as satisfying as it might sound uh, is necessarily the right approach okay that was a year ago trudeau saying oh we don't want to put a tax on them they might pass it along to their consumers now he's doing precisely that or at least threatening to do it jay you're following the cost of living in this city what do you think of this idea like you think the government brought in a tax on grocery store chains they would lower their prices no of course not the whole thing is silly i mean the the first of all the reason for inflation part of it of course was the pandemic and and supply chain issues but the other is massive deficit spending with this government um but now they want to bring in as an example the carbon tax which is going to increase taxes on the farmers that grow the food and the truckers that ship the food so (laughs) you know this trudeau photo op with a bunch of grocery execs this is political theater right the man is an actor and I have no problem with that, but, um, you know, stick to acting school if that's what you want to do. All right, Jay, always bringing, the, bringing your opinion. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. Take care. All right, let's talk about the campaign for a four-day work week. How does that sound? That sounds pretty awesome to a lot of people. How about having a long weekend every weekend? You work four days a week. Now, there is a campaign to bring this in in Canada and in British Columbia. Uh, there are calls to bring it in as a pilot project and see how it, how it works out. Now, for a lot of people, when they hear this idea, you're going to go, wait a sec, you're going to just work four days a week? How is that going to work? Won't this be a, a drastic reduction in, in, in productivity? Well, let's check out what they did at Microsoft in Japan. They brought in the Microsoft four-day work week in Japan. Got Joe O'Connor standing by to discuss it. First, have a listen to this report. This is from 7 News in Australia. Microsoft has experimented with a four-day work week in Japan to see if it improves workers' productivity. And the results are rather remarkable. For more on this, I'm joined by Network Finance Editor Gemma Acton. Gemma, 
What was the outcome? Andrew was overwhelmingly positive. Productivity increased by about 40%. Employee sick days and power costs both fell by about a quarter. There was 60% less materials printed out, apparently. And about 90% of employees said they enjoyed it, which is perhaps unsurprising, given <laughs> that they were getting paid for five days but only working four. Well, yeah, I'm not. I'm surprised it's not higher than 90%. Let's discuss it with my guest now, Joe O'Connor. Joe is an advocate for a reduced work week. He is the director of the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Pleasure to join you again. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. And, and we've talked about this issue before on the show. And especially when it comes to real world examples like where is this being done is it actually possible to do this what do you think of what microsoft did here in in japan yeah the microsoft study is certainly a, an interesting one um they're not the only major global brand to have experimented with this unilever have been doing this in new zealand now for about a year and have extended it to their australia division following the success of the trial in new zealand um, so this is something that is is growing in appeal um, for, for leaders and organizations that are very recognizable to a lot of people. But I think closer to home here in Canada, we've just had a very recent trial here in North America. 41 companies took part, including nine Canadian firms. And the results were very comparable and similar to what we're seeing here with Microsoft Japan. Out of those companies, all 41, including all nine in Canada, decided to stick with the policy at the end of the trial. Um, they were reporting higher revenues. They were reporting that it was easier to attract and retain talent. And the employees participating in the trial were happier, healthier, and as a result, more productive. Right. And let's let's talk a little bit about that productivity outcome here, especially in this Microsoft example here. Now, you heard in that news report that we played there, they reported an increase in productivity now when we take a little dig a little deep deeper into what they actually did there joe did they do like a compressed work week where you work four hours but you work a longer day or did they actually do a like a real four-day work week like you actually had a, an extra day off so this was genuine work time reduction which is the same yeah. as um, we've seen in the trials that I've been involved in and the organizations that I work with. And, and it's really based on a fundamental trade, which is that the employer commits to a genuine reduction in work time for no loss in pay in exchange for a commitment from employees to maintain output and in turn to increase hourly productivity. So the devil is in the detail here, Mike, and it's important to, to acknowledge this isn't a case where, you know, in Microsoft, in Unilever, in any of these other companies in Canada, that they just reduce the work week and then like flicking a light switch, productivity went up. This yeah. is an operational excellence project in disguise. This is not just about changing the hours that people work, it's about changing the way that people work. And using the offer of a shorter working week as a forcing function and as an incentive to streamline your operations, to improve your processes, and to change work practices. That's really what's at the heart of the success of this policy for the organizations that have made it work. Speaking about the campaign for a four-day work week with my guest, Joe O'Connor. Now, in the situation with Microsoft in Japan, and we heard in that report, Joe, they reported less sick time. So when people are working four days a week instead of five days a week, 
what is the what is the explanation there? People are less stressed out, so they're getting less sick. What's going on? It's a combination of factors. One is certainly that we can see from the research that there is a close correlation between reduced work time and reduced stress, burnout, and improvements in employee well-being. So obviously people being better rested, better recharged, more refreshed while they're at work, um, and having more, more time uh, off has benefits which which can result in a drop off in sick leave there's also scheduling reasons behind this so for many people you know if they have hospital appointments if they've got healthcare appointments that they need to take typically people will take that on their schedule day off so in other words if people are friday off it's easier to coordinate and schedule their doctor's appointment around that for us obviously when people just have a weekend off Sometimes it's not as easy to access healthcare over the weekend. But this is consistent with what we've seen across all of the research, sick leave and single day absenteeism reducing by more than 50% in the vast majority of studies we've seen. Okay, there is a campaign to get this up and running here in British Columbia as well. Let me play a clip here for you from Sonia Furstenau, who is the leader of the BC Green Party in British Columbia. They have uh, an idea to bring in a pilot project for a four-day work week in BC. Here's what she has to say about it, then I'll get your thoughts. Workers are healthier, happier, they're more satisfied, but the employers and the businesses also benefit. They see better productivity, they see their costs go down. They often see their revenues go up. So it really is a win-win. Okay. Well, I mean, she's putting the best foot forward on it for sure. She's calling it a, a win, a win-win. I mean, in the studies that you've tracked, Joe, and, and where this has been implemented, uh, I mean, uh, have there been any places where it, where it didn't work? Like they brought it in and it, it fell flat? There have been some examples of organizations that have tried this out and for one reason or another have not stuck with the policy. It's a small minority. And I would say even in those cases, what you've learned from the process of trialing this about your organization, about your people, about ways that you can optimize your processes is absolutely invaluable regardless of, of where you end up going at the end of the trial. But we've seen that for most companies, once they once they start trialing this, they tend to stick with the policy because of the benefits that it's bringing um, for their business, business and for their people. I think there's a real opportunity for Canada to be a leader on this, to be on the forefront of this. I mean, this is a country where I think that the harmony between work and life plays a much bigger factor than maybe our neighbors down south. And I think that, you know, a pilot program such as what's being proposed by the Green Party, we're not talking about something that's mandatory. We're talking about a voluntary initiative where organizations who want to be forward thinking, who want to innovate on this, are given structured support in order to be able to do that. And I can't see for, for any reason why anyone would have any objection or issue with that. Well, of course, there continues to be skepticism around it, and, and I can certainly understand why. And I'm going to, we'll take some calls on this after the break, and I, I know some people will be dubious. Let me play a clip here for you from, this is Ryan, as a listener to the show, Joe, and he phoned me on this on an earlier program, and here he is making the case, look, he's just not buying this, and this is the reason why. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. If you go down to a four-day work week, you actually put higher stress on your people, because you need to get five days worth of work done in four days, and if it's not a longer day... You're stressing them out, and they have no time for any sort of family or anything to get anything done. Okay. Like, isn't that some simple mathematics that he just broke down there, Joe? Like, if you say, okay, 
you can work four days, but we need you to maintain output. We need you to maintain the same productivity. Aren't you? Does not mean you've got to work a hell of a lot harder on those four days? That's a lot stress people out. Well, the reality is that we've seen throughout history that advances in technology and improvements in productivity have, over the course of centuries now, resulted in redu- reductions in the work week. And this question around an increase in stress, you know, is often something that gets speculated upon. It's often something which might be a concern going into a trial um, for organizations. This is is not about doing the same work in the same way in less time. This is not about intensifying your work. This is about redesigning your work. And if you look at the actual data from all of the trials that we've seen globally on this, um, the the public sector trial in Iceland, the um, four-day week global trials in North America and the UK that I was involved in, um, this is something where we're seeing demonstrable reductions in stress and burnout amongst employees. And the productivity gains that are being found are not being found through speed up, they're being found through organizational redesign. So things like meetings, how you use technology, how you collaborate, um, your processes, really re-engineering those rather than saying to people, keep doing what you were doing in five days, but do it quicker. Okay, interesting stuff as always, Joe. Thank you for coming on to talk about this today. I appreciate it. No problem, Mike. Great to join you again. Let's talk about the drug overdose crisis in our province now. Drug overdose deaths continue to rise. This after an aggressive harm reduction program. We have tried decriminalization of drug possession. 2.5 grams. That is now the legal possession limit. Heroin, cocaine, crystal meth, ecstasy, fentanyl. This was supposed to make things better. We have tried safe supply of drugs. We talked about this on the show yesterday. People are going to do drugs anyway, so give them free laboratory-tested drugs instead. If they're going to use anyway, at least they won't OD and die from so-called safe-supplied drugs. This is what we have been doing. Okay, despite all that, the overdose deaths continue to go up. This is not working. Here is the question. Should there be a massive expansion of treatment, detox, get people off these drugs, Is it possible to do that? My next guest is living proof that you can beat drug addiction. Denise Fantinato. Denise is a recovered drug addict. She's a listener to the show, and I'm so pleased she reached out to me, and I'm very happy she could come to the studio today. Hi, Denise. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for coming on, and I congratulate you on your recovery. So, so let's go over your story, Denise. Can you tell me when, when did you first start using drugs? I was a teenager. I was uh, 13 years old, and um, the typical, you know, smoking pot, um, drinking, acid and cocaine by my mid-teens, and by the time I was 19, I was a full-blown alcoholic, and uh, getting more experimental with more drugs as well. Yeah. Yeah, and tell me about the drugs that you were using at that time. At that time, when I was 19, 20 years old, I was doing speedballs, or speeders, I should say, which were prescribed speed from my doctor for weight loss, actually, um, mm. and doing a lot of cocaine and, and um, started dabbling in ecstasy, or not ecstasy, MDMA at that time, MDA, 
And uh, and then that rapidly progressed in my early 20s, mid-20s to heroin and, and crystal meth and and uh, cocaine. Okay, boy, oh boy, those are, so, those are some powerful drugs. Like crystal meth, can you tell me a little bit about that? Because this sounds like it's a very, very damaging drug. What was it like to be doing crystal meth? When I was on crystal meth, I, I was on it for about a year. Um, I mean, I had dabbled with it beforehand, but I got really wired to it. And I lost complete control of um, knowing reality from fiction. Uh, one of the stories that is still emblazoned into my brain is um, I would get the sense that I uh, I could not use the use of my legs and I would be dragging myself on the ground because I could not use my legs. They felt very heavy um, and I didn't know what was going on. And then after that, um, I would wonder, did that really happen? Was I actually just dragging myself on the ground? And then one time I went upstairs to my bedroom and I was dragging myself up the stairs and couldn't use my legs. And then when I got to the top of the stairs, I I realized, okay, this is really happening. This really happens. And then the next minute I thought, did that really happen? And um, once I stopped using crystal meth, I've never lost use of my legs. But to this day, Mike, I don't know what was going on, but it, I did not know reality from fiction, and uh, I, it, I, it was one of the worst periods of my life because I was so completely detached from who I was. Right. Uh, what kind I, of impact? What kind of impact did it have on your life? Like, were you homeless at that time, or what was happening? I or? wasn't homeless at that time, although there were many times I was at the brink of it, um, but. Um, I, I was psychotic. Um, I did things that I normally would not do. Like one time I threw a pot of hot coffee on my brother. A rational person does not do that. Um, it would make me feel very violent. Um, it was very mm. scary. I didn't know who I was anymore until a friend of mine came to me and said, uh, oh, and I had attempted suicide. And after that... Oh. My friend came to me and said, that crap is killing you. And he, he said, take this instead. It'll chill you out. And he handed me a flop of heroin. Oh, so I immediately went from crystal meth to heroin and stayed on that for about a year. And uh, until I finally, you know, came to hit my bottom completely and uh, there was no way to go but up. Either okay, so let's, let's talk about that. Like that moment in your life, you were at the bottom. And let's talk about how you you were able to turn this around, Denise. Like, what was the moment that turned this around for you? I think the moment that turned it around for me is when um, I was very suicidal. I didn't have anyone in my life who could care for my two dogs. And I was actually considering killing them and myself because I couldn't go on and I didn't know what would happen to them. And when I thought that I was actually willing to take these two beautiful lives, you know, because I couldn't handle my own, that was a real wake-up call. And I looked around, and my my home was just chaos. Um, I had lost all of my skills, my life skills, my job skills, anything I knew how to do from basic hygiene to cooking a dinner. All of those skills were gone. Um, I could not remember what it was like to wake up and just have a coffee and get on with my day. 
I, I was shooting up 12 times a day. I had to shoot up in the middle of the night because I would wake up junk sick. And, um, and wow. I, I just couldn't go on living like that anymore. Something had to change. I, I was convinced I was going to go to jail because I was selling drugs to maintain my habit. Um, or I was going to be institutionalized or I was going to die. So those three options or, or get out, you know. And then it was your, your parents, right, who yeah. helped you? Yeah, I um, finally told my parents what was going on. Uh, they had their suspicions, but... Um, they didn't know it? Like you were able to hide all that from them? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because, well, also when you're using, you know, you're not very sociable, so you're not really in contact yeah. with your family a whole lot. You avoid the family functions. Um, and, and this is one of the things that they don't talk about when they're talking about safe supply is... The addict um, we're completely devoid emotionally. We can't ca- care for our kids. We can't care for our pets. We can't be good daughters or sisters or sons. Um, we we are living in a personal hell that we really can't share with anybody else, and um, we're just completely devoid of any positive emotion. And okay. it's, it's usually just, you know, it's a very lonely place to be. Right. And then as I, you have told me that after you kind of opened up to your parents, you were able to then get into a 12-step program. It was, is it Narcotics Anonymous? That's is that, right, yeah. Okay, Narcotics Anonymous. Tell me about that. How did that, how did that help you? Okay, well, I detoxed uh, for a couple of weeks in my, at my dad's house, and I, I'm so grateful for that. And it was my mom who actually suggested that I go to a NA meeting. And I was open to absolutely anything. And she took me to my first meeting, and, um, and something clicked. And... Uh, and I stayed in NA for 11 years. Like from that day, I just started doing what I was supposed to do because I didn't know what to do anymore. So I relied on these people in, uh, in NA to show me how to live and show me how to confront my demons that, you know, brought me to addiction in the first place and kept me there Um and I'm really, really grateful to NA. And uh, as I wrote to you, I no longer go to meetings anymore. Um, I consider myself a recovered addict. Um, it's been 20 years now since I've gone to a meeting, 22 years. But I'm just a normal living human being um, that I, I can handle whatever comes my way. And I don't have to toss it away with um, street drugs or, you know, anything else. So... <clears throat> All right, a few more minutes with my guest, Denise Fantanato. And Denise has very bravely come to the studio today to share her story about beating her drug addiction. And you heard just how bad it got for Denise and how she was able to turn her life around. So it's just an amazing story, Denise. And when I think about how far you've come, it's, in- it's incredible. Because tell me about your life now, right? Because you've got a small business, you're married, right? Yeah, life is good. Um, yeah. We we have four dogs. Those are my kids. Um, <laughs> I'm very involved in dog rescue. Um, and yes, we have our home. I bought it in 1997, so only six years after I got into recovery. So that was quite wow. amazing. Um, um, like you say, we have our small business. I, I'm happily married for 23 years. Uh, I'm block watch captain, uh, which my former neighbors would never see the day that that would happen. Um, 
and uh, life is just good. I, I'm 61 years old now, and I didn't think I would survive past 30, so I think I'm doing pretty good. And, yeah. and I, I, I really want to just quickly mention that my friend who gave me that flap of heroin, he and I actually ended up cleaning up together, and he is still clean and sober and doing wonderful and living in Ottawa and has a million degrees under his belt and is doing wonderful. It, it is possible, right? These are the inspiring stories that can show that it is possible to to beat these these drugs. So, so let's talk a little bit about the the harm reduction measures that we brought in here, and, and your thoughts on that. So, let's talk about decriminalization of drug possession. So, it's two point five grams, the legal possession limit for these drugs, and the idea, as it was rolled out by government, was: look, we want to take away the stigma of drug possession that, or drug use then more people will feel confident to come forward and ask for help. What do you think of that idea or, or concept? I think it's completely bass backwards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that helped get me into recovery was I, I was ashamed of what I was doing. And if somebody kept saying to me, oh, it's okay, let's just give you more heroin or let's just give you more crystal meth or whatever, I wouldn't be here today. Um, I would have been dead a long time ago. Um, I, I think decriminalization and allowing people to carry two and a half grams of heroin or fentanyl in their pocket and they don't think that person is selling drugs is living on Mars or Venus or somewhere that we're not on. Um, fentanyl, two and a half grams, how many people can that kill? Yet somebody is allowed to walk around with that amount and leave you know, uh, flaps with traces of it in the parks for kids to find. And, you yeah. know, we're hearing stories like that all the time. And we have sp- we're spending so much time listening to the addicts in- who are in active addiction, and all they can focus and think about is more drugs. I need to get high. Yeah. You know, why aren't we listening to people who want to actually help these people get off drugs? Um, like I said, it's a very lonely place to be. It's a hellish place to be. I consider myself lucky that I went through it when I did because I would not want to be, um, in in the position the addicts of today are in because it's way worse now. How about, how about safe supply? What about that idea that if people are going to use anyway, let's give them, um, a laboratory tested amount of, um, narcotics, with opioids, and if they're going to use anyway, at least if they're using lab-tested drugs and they get them for free, then maybe they won't commit crimes to get the drugs, and maybe they won't overdose and die. What do you think of that idea? Well, my uh, cousin's son was on safe supply, and yeah, he's dead now. Oh. So that's what I think about that. It, there is no safe supply. And we, we're hearing all the stories about safe supply getting you know traded or sold for the harder drugs, and it ending up in the hands of school kids now. Um, the addict wants the biggest bang. So if, he's, if the addict is getting safe supply, it's most likely that it's going to be traded or sold so that they can get something else to give them the bigger bang. And safe supply, you know, people overdose on safe supply all the time, especially when they don't have the tolerance to it or when they combinate... Um, I have a uh, friend who has been on Suboxone for seven years, mm-hmm. and um, he's down to a very low dose right now, but in order for him to get high on other drugs, he has to take more drugs to get high, and he overdosed and, and um, 
came to you in the hospital about a month ago, and thankfully now he's in treatment um, and trying to get off the Suboxone. Um, okay. But Safe okay. Supply just keeps you embedded in addiction. It doesn't set you free at all. Okay. Sadly, I have 30 seconds left, Denise. So what would you think the, a better answer is? Expand treatment? Expand treatment, yeah. detox treatment, build the addict's uh, self-esteem by teaching them life skills and job skills, uh, help them reconnect with family. But keeping somebody on drugs is not going to do it. Yeah. Recovery treatment is really the only option because what we're doing now is not working. Yeah. Denise, I, I'm so grateful to you for reaching out to me and having the, the courage to come in and, and tell your story today. I think it's absolutely extraordinary your the way you've turned your life around and beat, beat your addictions. And I think you're an inspiration for a lot of people. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.